You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. And we'll be looking together today at verses 1 through 6. You're going to find this on page 774 of the Pew Bible. The book of Jonah, page 774, we're looking at chapter 1 and reading verses 1 through 6. Hear the word of God. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought to us that we may not perish. The last time we were in this Old Testament book, we considered two very different responses to the storm. The seasoned sailors were terrified as the tempest raged fiercely. The lightning strikes, the cracks of thunder, the waves overwhelming the deck. And it was especially strong enough that they knew it was extraordinary. From our vantage point, we know that God was speaking and his divine voice was deafening. The pagan mariners cried out to their false gods who were of no help whatsoever. And in so doing, these mariners manifested the reality of man's innate sense of deity. Each of us knows instinctively that God is the maker of heaven and earth. It's how we're wired as human beings. It's part of the image of God. Solomon says God has put eternity into man's heart. And that sense and feeling is very deep. It is, as a, you might think, an intuition that we live and move and have our being in God. Well, the prophet Jonah was, for his part, fast asleep in the bowels of the ship. And as a fugitive, he was bearing the burden of things weighing heavily upon his mind. He felt as if his relationship with God was not right. His conscience was wounded. And he was depressed, as you can imagine. He was weighed down by it. He was looking 
to the prospect of sleep as some sort of escape from his pain. And the Lord didn't abandon him. Didn't forsake him. The Lord loved him. And the reason why, I don't know why he loved Jonah. Jonah was a disobedient prophet. He had defied the Lord. When the prophet Balaam disobeyed, you remember, God gave him up to his own sinful desires. That's how he dealt with Balaam. But you see, God's love doesn't depend on the performance of his children. His love, once bestowed, remains steadfast, immovable, and unwavering. That's what we're taught anyway. And in the prophet Jonah's case, the Lord was gradually bringing him to his senses. So Jonah, paralyzed by depression, was surrounded by pagans who were very much awake. And I think there's the irony. The prophet slumbers while the sailors are seeking deliverance. Isn't that ironic? And that's why the ship's captain awakened Jonah, imploring him to call upon his God. Full-fledged panic had gripped the sailors who began praying to whomever would listen. And the captain goes down into the hold of the ship, likely to fetch some of the cargo, and he's surprised to see Jonah fast asleep in his assigned hammock. Jonah's mental, emotional, and spiritual exhaustion, of course, had led him to sleep, and the captain says, Arise, call out to your God. That word, arise, did you notice? It's the very same word that God used when he said, Arise, go to Nineveh. And perhaps Jonah was thinking to himself he was having a nightmare when he heard the same word. It's the same command that God had given him. Arise. The word haunted him as he considered his dereliction of duty. And I can imagine Jonah rubbing his eyes and trying to reorient himself as he woke up and tried to put the pieces together. He says to himself, wait a minute, that's, that's not God speaking. That's the captain. He's frantic. Something is terribly wrong here. The man is screaming at me, get up, call upon your God. And Jonah begins to realize that the ship is sinking. The storm is enormous and there is something extraordinary about it. And while the captain doesn't yet know God, he certainly has a healthy respect for divine power. And he's willing to try anything to save both himself and his ship. And for all he knew, Jonah's God might be the one behind this massive tempest. So the captain was tapping into every possibility. Maybe this one would work. Perhaps he says to himself, well, sooner or later, we're going to find just the right God for whatever's going on here. And once again, we notice the captain's display of the innate sense of deity. He was aware of something or someone greater than himself. And I want you to notice how the captain's rebuke was not for something done, but for something not done. He rebuked Jonah not for doing something wrong, but for not doing something right. For leaving something undone, for falling asleep in a moment of deep crisis, 
This was a sin of omission, in other words. And it was as bad as sins of commission. You remember Matthew 25? It lists people who are lost simply because they didn't help others. Sins of omission. How can you sleep, he says? We're about to sink. Man, at least you should be praying. And so here we find the pagan skipper admonishing the Jewish prophet for his indifference. And I think behind this frantic plea from the ship's captain was the infinite wisdom of God. Rosemary Nixon reminds us that God does not always address us through saints. He is just as free to use sinners as vehicles of his call. God spoke through a donkey in the Old Testament. He even prophesied to an apostate chief priest in the New. So here God was rebuking the fugitive Jew through the instrumentality of the pagan captain. Or as Robert Trail puts it, a heathen shipmaster challenging a godly prophet for his neglect of seeking God. And I'm still amazed, as perhaps you are too, at God's patient, gracious, and merciful character with regard to this man. He kept calling his prophet, and his prophet kept refusing to listen, and things would get worse before they got better. And yet through it all, the steadfast love of the Lord proved to be unwavering, never changed. And I think what it teaches is that God will not forsake his children even when they fail to measure up. What do you mean, you sleeper, said the captain. He couldn't understand how this Jew could be sleeping. He did not yet know about Jonah's defiant dereliction of official duty. Yes, that's what it was. But he did rebuke Jonah, and this reproof was the first step to restoring him. It served in the same way, I think, as the rooster's crow did for the apostle Peter, as our elder read. You remember how Jesus was arrested and arraigned and the bystanders were identifying Peter as his disciple. And as he read, Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And that's when he went out and wept bitterly. Sometimes it takes a stern rebuke to wake us up from spiritual slumber, doesn't it? Solomon says, a rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. And I think that is an important factor in distinguishing the wise from the fool. A rebuke is enough for a wise man. But many hits can't even cure a fool. Think of King David. One word from the prophet Nathan was enough. Turned. In the case of the apostle Peter, it only took the word and the glance of the Lord. By contrast, even a hundred wallops with a two-by-four wouldn't have made any difference with Pharaoh. Look at the flood. <clears throat> it destroyed almost the entire human race, but not the foolishness of mankind. A flood. And such punishments only reach a fool's back, and they can never reach the heart. That's the point. 
Again, Solomon says in Proverbs 27, crush a fool in a mortar with a pestle along with crushed grain, and yet his folly will not depart from him. So the severest punishment only brings about a hardened impenitence. But the true Christian, the sincere believer, has been equipped by the Spirit to benefit from a reproof. He or she has been given a listening ear, a tender conscience, a softened heart, a teachable spirit, something very rare in our day. And here we find Jonah was asleep on duty and the captain was right to rebuke him. And don't you see again the irony in the fact that Jonah was sleeping while the sailors were awake? That tempest was sent primarily for Jonah, yet it was the mariners who were afraid. And I think it anticipates the response of the Ninevites, who would be more sensitive than Jonah himself. God is so rich in mercy. God is so abounding in grace. He is so steadfast in his love for his children that he will never leave them. Once you are received into God's family, you will never, ever be forsaken. Nothing can drive you out, not even yourself. You will never be disowned. You'll never be disinherited. You have a father in heaven, as Jonah's situation proves, who is fully inclined to do what is best for you. I look at Jonah as a poster child for this phrase, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And I want you to see with me that the call of God is not just an invitation, but more importantly, it is a summons. It is both because the Spirit typically doesn't push, but draws us into duty. The psalmist says, as Elder Gillenan read, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. We're servants of God. We're disciples of Christ. We are members of the heavenly family. And as a willing people, we choose our service and we're not coerced into it. The Spirit enables us to love our master, to make free will offerings to him. And that's the fruit of conversion. We willingly take his yoke upon us. So when God calls, it is an invitation to serve and worship and obey. It is that. But at the same time, it is a call that comes from the everlasting throne. And you know what a throne means. Sovereignty. Christ is our king. He is our gracious sovereign, and he doesn't negotiate with us. He's a benevolent king, yes. He's a gracious sovereign, yes. He has all authority. And in fleeing to Tarshish, Jonah defied the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And had he not been the object of God's love, he would have perished forever. Thankfully for Jonah, the Lord extended mercy and bestowed grace. Indeed, we've all benefited from the mercy and grace of God. And that call to preach in Nineveh was a divine summons for Jonah to obey 
And the call of God to serve in your situation is a divine summons to do just the same. In whatever place and calling you find yourself today, it's the Lord who put you there. He called you, he equipped you, he placed you in the position that he needs you to be in. And this makes every lawful endeavor a sacred calling in which to honor God. Not just the pulpit, any place in calling. Whether you're a homemaker or a business person or a teacher or doctor or electrician or student. Whatever it is to which God has called you, in that calling, you can glorify God. You. You can glorify God. And once you determine what that call is, it's important to follow it through. And you ask the question, well, how do I know what's the calling in my life? I would say at least three things. Inward desire, open opportunity, outward affirmation. The desire may be nothing more than an inclination to provide for your family. Or what they say today, the passion that you have for something. The inward desire. The open opportunity may be a job opening for which you're qualified. Or a friend suggesting something. It's an opportunity for you. And of course, the affirmation could come in a variety of ways. It could be from your boss, your friends, your clients, parishioners. Inward desire, open opportunity, and this outward affirmation. In that place and calling, you can glorify God and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls you. But you see, Jonah, he refused to answer God's call. And he turned away from his commission. And just as Jonah was sleeping on the ship, so at times you and I fall asleep in our faith and calling, don't we? We hold on to truth, but we stumble as we neglect to put it into practice. We fall asleep spiritually to, be the, to the reality and the power of true Christianity. That happens in my life. We fall asleep to the true power of Christianity. For example, how often do you and I fail at the two great commands? To love God. To love our neighbor. We fall asleep to everything else but self-interest and we overlook mercy. When the Pharisees saw Jesus eating with sinners, they questioned his disciples. Jesus said, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Here was Matthew himself, this corrupt tax gatherer. He had been called by Jesus, and the Lord summoned him to turn from the world and to follow him. The call of God. And with that call went the authority of the king and the power of the spirit. So Matthew, brand new convert, invites his old friends to eat with Christ who welcomed them. Because he knew by experience what the grace of the Lord Jesus could do. The disciple wanted his old associates to meet the Savior and to be saved. When the Pharisees complained about this, 
Jesus tried to wake them up to the truth because the great physician of souls was doing his work of spiritual surgery. And the Pharisees? Unmerciful. They lacked compassion. They were infected with pride. And they were more concerned with their own rules than the souls of men. Because true Christianity, as we're told, at least by James, consists not in externals or rules, but in loving Christ, helping others. And these Pharisees had a form of godliness consistent with their pride and ambition. And they were spiritually asleep. They lacked power. The power that leads to mercy and compassion. So Jesus rebuked them. He humbled them. He forced them to examine themselves, and God did the same to Jonah through the captain. And sometimes he has to rebuke us as well. And when he does, it's out of love. He knows what we need, and he knows when we need it. As a father disciplines his child in whom he delights, so God disciplines us in whom he delights. And there is nobody who disciplines like the Lord. He tailors it right to our need. When the teaching of the word and the power of the Holy Spirit go along with the rebukes of providence, we are truly blessed. That's what we're taught. And so we're taught here to trust in the Lord who will do whatever is necessary to preserve his children. If you think, as a parent, you love your child, and I know you do, this is nothing compared to how God loves his children. He is ready and he is willing and he is able to employ his almighty power in the care of his own. And if that requires enlisting all the forces of nature, our Father is prepared to do so. And it shows at one and the same time his power to control a storm and his love to send it. We see evidence of this throughout the whole history of redemption, don't we? He'll turn water into blood if he has to. He'll plague an entire nation with frogs and gnats and flies. He's willing to strike herds and inflict boils and send the hail and dispatch the locusts and envelop a whole people in darkness. He'll even kill every firstborn if that's what it takes to deliver his people. He'll part the Red Sea and move the sun 10 steps back and slaughter 185,000 enemies in one night. Whatever it takes, our God is ready and willing to do it on behalf of his children. He'll even crucify his own son. And he aims to preserve you and I for the inexpressible joys and the sanctified pleasures of heaven. And you know what's amazing to me? God had some Ninevites in mind when he commissioned Jonah. That's staggering to me. For some reason, I don't know why, he wanted to spare that generation of Assyrian people. Why God would care about the sworn enemies of Judah is beyond me. But in spite of all their pagan wickedness, he was determined to deliver that generation. And if some of those Ninevites are in heaven, I'll bet we'll have some interesting conversations when we get there. 
I'd like to ask them about Jonah's preaching, about their repentance, sackcloth covering all of them from the king in the palace to the slave in his hovel. And such a massive revival must have been an amazing sight to behold. And Jonah himself was an object of divine affection. I want to talk to him. This wasn't just any storm. This was a great wind that was hurled, a mighty tempest, it says. And if not for Jonah's prayer in chapter 2 and his being a prophet, I'd question his salvation. His sin and shame for rebelling against the Lord were great and they were fearful. But as we've said over and over again, God's grace is abundant and his mercy is rich and his love is steadfast. And he delights in extending mercy to the unworthy. And he delights in bestowing grace upon the undeserving. And he does it through Jesus Christ, who is the only mediator between God and men. And the incarnate Son of God is completely qualified and equipped for that ministry. Had the Father known that the Son was not qualified, he never would have commissioned him. You and I might ordain an unqualified man, but God would never seal somebody who's unfit. Jesus is faithful, he's wise, he's zealous, he was determined to accomplish the mission, and he loved the Father with his whole heart. And this gave Christ joy at the cross. Can you imagine joy at the cross? He fulfilled the law, denied himself, spoke the truth, and glorified God. And never before and never after has there ever been a more faithful, wise, and zealous servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ. And he tells us that he welcomes us into his family as justified sinners. But someone says to me, Pastor, I have no assurance because I have committed the same sin over and over again. I think that's characteristic of many Christians in their fight with sin. It's characteristic of me. They wrongly conclude, after they have repented, I must not be a true believer because I fell. And I keep falling. And in their struggle with sin, they begin to tremble at the biblical threats and the thought of condemnation. They may even think that their profession is hypocritical simply because they've fallen into sin. And I understand that. Because sin is a grievous thing. It's what plagues every one of us. But let's remember how Jesus dealt with those disciples after sleeping for the third time. Do you remember? The Garden of Gethsemane. He came to the disciples and found them sleeping and he said to Peter, So... Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Our Lord didn't berate them, didn't degrade them, didn't scold or reprimand them. Having asked his rhetorical question, could you not watch? He counseled them to watch and pray. He was teaching his disciples about the snares of sin and spiritual warfare because he knows that we're but dust. We have willing spirits, but the flesh is weak. 
And God promises to forgive our sins, even if repeated, every time we repent. Israel's history was replete with sin and unfaithfulness and backslidings. And yet in Jeremiah 3, God says to Israel, Return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. Because that power that joins a believer to Jesus is that which keeps him joined to Jesus. John Flavel says this, If none can come to Christ except the Father draw them, then surely none can be drawn from Christ except the Father leave them. And he'll never leave. And by his gracious power, he'll keep us through faith unto salvation. One more time, Flavel says, well then, if the world say, I will ensnare you, if the devil say, I will destroy you, if the flesh say, I will betray you, yet you are secure and safe as long as God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And that's where our comfort and assurance lies in being preserved to the end. God will never leave us. He'll never forsake us. And thank God for his grace. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we see in the example of Jonah an illustration of ourselves. We thank you that your grace abounds even where sin is multiplied. We thank you that your love is unwavering, which was proved at the cross. And we pray that you'll help us to persevere as you preserve us by your power through faith in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For listening, for more information or to connect with us, visit us at redeemerohio.org.